Welcome to the Trigger Warning Talk podcast, where we have uncensored conversations. We exchange information and we provide a number of resources for all the listeners and the viewers. We are streaming on all the major podcast platforms, and you can watch these interviews on the Spotify free version and our YouTube channel, which is Pinton Pending Consultant Solutions LLC. I'm your Fire Medic CEO host, LP. We are talking about selling bonds. This is episode number four, led by our sister Ashley got our brother Alvin there in the building here. Let me give you just some trigger warning information, disclaimers. Not a lawyer, but I play one on TV, Albert, so you'll appreciate that. If you're triggered at any point during this podcast and you need help immediately, call 911. That'll get you police, fire, EMS. If you don't have an immediate need, we have a bunch of resources for domestic violence, human sex trafficking sexually based offenses and true crime. We do a missing person case and we also are going to be providing information for people that are suicidal. Call 988 here in the United States. That number is toll free 24-7. I want to thank you all for joining us today for this episode. I want to pass the mic over to Ashley. The mic is yours. About 15 years ago, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder Um, and I had several episodes of mania. Mine is bipolar type one, which means you have to have multiple episodes of mania versus hypomania, which is a little bit to a lesser degree. In case you don't know about bipolar disorder, it is highs and lows, really high moods. They call it euphoria. So your mood is extremely heightened. You believe you have capabilities to do anything, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But when people are in manic phase, they can sell their house. They can make irrational decisions to the degree where they go financially bankrupt. They can be a risk to themselves and others. It can be extremely dangerous. And then the opposite side of that is the major depression. So you can have suicidal ideation, not be eating. You can not eat in either one of them. When somebody has the mania, they may go several days and not sleep because they it's not on their mind. They're focused on whatever outlandish goals they might have at that particular moment in time. How have I coped with this? Initially, um, I was medicated. I took something, brand name is Seroquel, and I took that about 15 years ago. And I took it maybe for about a year, year and a half. Claire, you could correct me if I'm wrong, because it was, you have to get me to take the stuff, and then <laughs> some other people. <laughs> I didn't know you took it for even that long. Yeah, I, I did. <laughs> yeah, I had my previous counterpart forcing me to take it every evening so (laughs) (laughs) but nowadays i stopped taking that i mean it had to be about 14 years ago so i found other coping mechanisms to deal with that because i'm not thrilled about a lot of those side effects that that offers and i can't say i'm entirely against it you know some things work for some people a lot of people that is their saving grace you know having a certain form pharmacological regiment that they've acclimated to so that they can function day to day and have their lives continue on without needing to be uh, hospitalized. But some of my coping mechanisms, it's kind of all across the board from what I wear to what I eat to the company I keep, the music that I listen to. One of the things about it is that you have a tendency to dwell. And there's several conditions that make you dwell on things. But if I'm going to get something stuck in my head repetitively, I want it to be something positive and not something negative. (laughs) One major thing in that regard is words that I read. I will read scripture. You know, I will listen to a pastor's sermon, certain music that will be uplifting instead of depressing to help manage that. Um, Also getting the right amount of sleep as much as possible. It doesn't always work that way. Trying to at least get six hours of sleep. And then if there's ever an opportunity to squeeze in a nap time, I try to do that too. Back to clothing, I gave up heels. I used to have these heels and just one pair. They are called, and Claire, maybe you know these ones. They're heel wedges. I used to have six inch heelless wedges. Oh yeah. If that ground is not 100% solid and flat, you will 
break your leg. <laughs> and not to mention, they're not even comfortable at all. <laughs> so I gave. I got a story about that. I'm going to tell you later on, Ashley, uh, on an EMS call with a woman who broke her ankle. Well, we'll talk about it later. Yeah. <laughs> Claire was giving me some eyes right now when I said heels aren't comfortable. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, the six-inch heel is registered. Not as comfortable as flat. Thank you so much. And it's not even good for your leg. So I totally gave away all my heels. I used to have a whole collection of those. I only wear flats. I, I'm best friends with spandex. <laughs> Like, if it's not comfortable, I, I, I won't wear it. And I like bright colors. But I feel like everything can serve a positive purpose. So that's where, even even with clothing, you know, I like, I like florals. I like things that are bright, uplifting. And I do have a black, too. You know, there's nothing wrong with black. But I do want them to be comfortable and have some sort of a, a value. Um, and also, I'm, I'm probably a little bit on the conservative side as well and then there's certain herbal supplements that i take i like taking a one-a-day vitamin when before i take an exam i like to take uh i'm if i'm mis mispronouncing it i apologize because i don't say it very well but ginkgo ginkgo viola yeah <laughs> that's my friend on exam days claire you're muted were you saying something uh yeah ginkgo biloba thank you yep and D-H-E-A. I like that one too. And then um, one thing that I have been an avid fan of for as long as I can remember is writing. When you have all these thoughts going on in your mind, whether positive or negative, to me, it's a, a crucial outlet to be able to get them out of your mind. And one way to do that is to write it down. It can be very negative when you're writing it, but at least it's some way to release that um, and not be so burdened with that. For, I'm going to say 25 years, it may, it may be 26 by now, but for 25-ish years, poetry writing has been a huge help for me for coping. And now more recently, writing and publishing. And then animals, nature, traveling. Another thing I'm really huge on is plants. I think I've got maybe about 150. Anytime I have like a milestone or accomplishment or something, then I earn plants for myself. But I try to hide them from my husband because he said it looks like Jurassic Park. Um, but you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's his prerogative. <laughs> So those are some of the ways that I cope. Um, I do want to open it up and, and find out some coping mechanisms from one of you all as well. Well, I can go because like, coping is definitely something that I think is extremely important. One, because uh, our family history, mental illness uh, does run in the family. I mean, that's just been something that I've incorporated into my lifestyle. When my job choice, being a cosmetologist, it allows me to listen to music, which which is another coping mechanism. Listen to music um, to be a little bit more free. I can choose what I wear to work for the most part. I can choose for the most part what time I go to work and who my clients are. That helps out a whole lot with uh, managing any undue stress. And all the things that you've already spoke about are uh, really important to me as well. I'm, I'm not so much of a writer as I am musician. So, like, I'll write, I'll write music, I'll write lyrics, I'll you know make beats, participate in helping other people's musical careers. Like, as a cosmetologist, I get to help people out a lot. So, and then experience a transformation, and most of the time, it's positive. So, seeing that positive reaction in other people, and I'm helping out, that helps out a lot. I'd say music is probably one of my number one, and then definitely cosmetology. I'm honestly throwing myself into the arts. And everything that I can do in that is extremely cathartic. The other day I was painting a pillow. <laughs> and it just was so refreshing for me because I hadn't been painting in such a while. And, you know, I was just, I didn't even go through the, well, I usually don't, like, pre-sketching and things like that. But I just, the colors on the pillow, I didn't like them. So I just brought some other colors in and... It was just, for me, really, really stress-relieving. Those things, I feel stifled when I'm not able to 
get to those things. Even if, even at work, if I'm constantly doing standard styles, yeah, that pays the bills because those are usually the regular clients, but I still, I crave to do things that are more artistic, participate in fashion shows where I can do really extreme makeup, even create my own pieces, jewelry making, what, oh, crazy, crazy styles with the hair, uh, just things that are more avant-garde. Those things help me out a lot because it's, it's just a release. Albert? Yeah, for me, um, there's a lot of things that Ashley says, says that I relate to, especially, especially dwelling. And unfortunately, if I could pick the thought to be positive, I would, but I, it usually isn't. Usually the things that are positive, I dismiss, and the things that are negative are the ones I fixate on. And so I have a lot of anxiety and I have a lot of self-imposed stress. And that's probably the biggest one for me is the self-imposed stress. For most of my adult life, running from it is what I usually choose first, uh, running from my past. But as I've gotten older, I've realized more and more that until I face my past and start uncovering some of the things I've gone through, I can't change my present behaviors. I can't understand my behaviors presently to uh, be able to change them. So first and foremost, I usually run from my past and it's, it's unhealthy. It's not a good coping mechanism, but it's the one that I've, I've fixated on because it, at least in the moment, it seems the easiest until something draws me back in the past and it's jarring and shocking and it, and it kind of sucks. But as far as day-to-day -day coping mechanisms, um, I, I really have a million of them. And, and I found with a lot of people that have our type of background, they will have a ton of coping mechanisms. Like the worse your background is, the more you have. And so first and foremost, it's my kids or my life, but like spending a bunch of time with them and doing things. So we just got back from Six Flags last night. We spent all day, went to water park the whole nine. And it's not that I don't think I'm living vicariously through them, but I'm getting joy from seeing them have these experiences. Not only that, but it's, it's kind of like righting the wrongs of my past. So like I didn't get to go through things. So I keep trying to expose them to different things and have them uh, do stuff. Video games is something really big. I like to play video games with my kids. My, my oldest, he's almost, he's almost an adult now. He's 17. And so he doesn't really like to play with me anymore. He would rather play with his peer group, but I have a nine-year-old. And so he still loves playing a bunch of games. And my youngest is three right now. So he doesn't play video games as much, obviously. Gardening is big. I have, you know, my wife has just gotten used to it now because, you know, I, I ripped up like a, a side of our hill in our house and turned into a garden and planter beds and everything. And But it takes a lot of work. So it's really funny. So some of my coping mechanisms also create stress, which then I have to try to deal with, which is kind of funny. Uh, but gardening is a big one. Um, so like, like if you bring house plants in, I don't know if you've ever dealt with this, Ashley, but sometimes like if a door is open or something, you get fruit flies or something like that. Like having flies and stuff in the house would be a big deal, but fishes or plants are, are something big. And then fish, um, got fresh water tanks and salt water tanks, which is a source of stress because it, it's a lot of work and they're, you know, to clean it and maintain it and stuff. And I, I've got a lot, especially if the lights not right and, and things like that. And as a coping mechanism, that's a source of stress. There are times when I'm filling up my tanks because I, I don't do my water separately. I usually put the water directly in. It'll evaporate down, especially the salt um, because salt, you know, costs a lot of money. So I don't cycle the tanks as much as I should. I like drain it down and fill it up. I usually just top it off. But since I'm usually doing a lot of different things, I have overflowed my tanks many times. I have it in a lower garage and so it is gone through the wall into the basement, soaked up the carpet. I've, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big source of stress and controversy at home, but it's one of my coping mechanisms, building things, which is really therapeutic, you know, to build things and create something of my own. I think it's really, really cool. But I, I countless times we'll get into this project where I'm about halfway and I'm not sure if I can complete it. Cause it's not like I have a train training or background for doing this. So like I built an awning on, on the back of our house, which it's, you know, could be a bad thing. I built a shed, the tree house and, so I get into these projects and I'm usually about halfway when I start to panic, like, what am I doing? All the money I spent, is this going to be good? What's the final product going to be look like? Because inevitably I get into it and it's not quite what I expected. Those are, those are the big ones for me as far as coping. Music and running, oh my God, I do that a lot. But I, I ruptured my Achilles a few years back. So I used to run marathons and you know, like training for marathons. So you just get out and you're running for hours, listen to music and stuff. It's really freeing and kind of get away. But then that injury kind of has, has, has stopped out a little bit. So that, that was one of my biggest coping mechanisms and it's kind of been taken away from me, but staying healthy, exercising. So I can also lead by example um, for, I got three boys. So exercising or track and stuff is really, really big in sports and stuff. And I want to be able to do that with them. Those are a lot of my, my coping mechanisms. I, I think it's important to not run. And I you know I, I need to take my own medicine, but I think it's important to not run from your past because it's through 
facing it that I'm able to figure out why I, I act the way I am. So like, for instance, I, I finally um, accepted an appointment to a case as a guardian litem. And that's something I've been running from for quite a while because the legal profession in and of itself is stressful, but I have so much self-imposed stress. I'm going to say the wrong thing or I won't make the right interpretation or something like that. And, and everyone's going to look at me and, and everything. And, and I have all this anxiety, but I had a bunch of presentations in one week. And then I got this uh, request to get appointed to a JL case. And so I accepted it. And, you know, I was kind of freaking out and panicking. I had all these things going on, all these juggling all these balls at the same time. But I got appointed. I reviewed the records and met with everyone I needed to. And I went to court and the world kept turning. Like all my anxiety and everything was, was pointless. It, it was it was unnecessary. But in your mind, you have this horrible echo chamber and then all these negative things are, are aspects on which you fixate and it just gets worse and worse and worse in your head. And in reality, it, it's not like that at all. So um, it's important to to do that. And then I guess my last one would be would, would be writing. I wanted to write an actual book about what we've gone through for the longest time. And through the years, I've written portions of it. So in a way, it's journaling. But to turn that into a book was also very stressful. So it's therapeutic by writing, but also stressful because I'm trying to create a product that I'm going to present to others. And I want to make sure I'm making the right points and I'm articulating it the right way. And in the middle of doing that, I actually had to step away because I was really getting dark because, you know, we're going, I was really living in the moment of our past. And so when I present, it's kind of like I dissociate and I'm talking about someone else and I've got my visual presentation and I hit these benchmarks and then I'm done and I detox. But writing about it is much more difficult, exponentially more difficult because I'm writing about my feelings and I'm dwelling in the moment. And I actually got really dark for a while and I, I, I left for about five weeks uh, from writing to stopping altogether because to, to get my, my head straight because it, it was bad. But then I finally got that finished and I, I've sent that off to a publisher and now I can kind of walk away. But I think I've really progressed significantly through doing that because I, I kind of wrote through, wrote about almost all my experiences in, in the past. And, and I've shared that with people. And that was one of the hardest parts for me is like, dealing with my past and just looking at the self guilt and I'm, like, it's my fault that all these things have happened and then people will judge me, but creating this product and sharing it with people and them not ridiculing me or making fun of me or anything like that. have been very, very helpful on it. I, I think I've progressed as far as healing substantially because of I've rambled for quite a bit. So I want to open it back up to you guys. All right. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for sharing that a little bit, but still related to this general topic of coping in the past. I had a lot of negative coping skills. I was a kleptomaniac. I'd say, I don't know, maybe for about six years, maybe longer. I didn't steal most of the time because I needed to. Most of the time it was a habit and to see if I could complete a challenge, take a risk and get the reward from it. So that was difficult to break that habit, but it was like, it was kind of like a, a rush, you know, like, I don't know if you guys have ever watched that movie crank. <laughs> so it was just like, <laughs> you know, just being able to take this risk with, and then being able to successfully achieve it or like a mission, you know, <laughs> it was like a, a secret agent. <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> um, one year I, I stole Christmas presents for everybody. Obviously that's not the purpose of Christmas, right? But uh, <laughs> so I had a lot of negative coping mechanisms. I would take pills. Uh, one time in high school, I don't know. Oh, Benadryl. I don't know. Maybe I took about 14 or 16, whatever was left in whatever container that was. And I just remember my foster sister, because she was very blunt um, and unfiltered. She started cussing me out. And she was like, you're crazy. What are you doing? Um, and then she finally just gave up and went and told on me. <laughs> so I had, a, you know, th those were a lot of negative ways that I would deal with it. I would get in my car and just drive as fast as I could. And that was how I coped with every triggering situation at one point in time. And, and, and part of that was that depression, but also I did some outlandish things during the, the manic episodes 
as well. But um, I did want to, I did want to go into, because nobody talks about this. Since I'm a, a nursing student and I had to study this condition, we're just finishing up mental health right now. And one of them, one of the conditions was paranoid schizophrenia. We had bipolar. Um, we had uh, narcissism and several others. A lot of anxiety conditions, COPD. They tend to let you know about the problems with your conditions. But last week I had to do a presentation and I chose the topic of bipolar. And I wanted to also highlight some of the positive attributes <laughs> of people diagnosed with it based off what uh, different experts researched, you know, different case studies. So uh, some of the things that I discovered were people with that condition can have spirituality, they can, that can be one of the positive attributes, um, the ability to persist and, and strength with that persistence, uh, proactive about their health. Let's see what else we have. Empathy for others. When one of my classmates is having a problem and I, and I mentioned them a lot cause I'm almost living with them at this point. I see them so much and we get stuck in so many situations, but when Ever, they're stressed out. Maybe they failed an exam. I've got a classmate that her daughter has cancer and she's nine. Um, I had another one that got worked security and got fired because somebody got stabbed, which was no fault of her own. So there's been different situations where I've had classmates that have been extremely stressed out. And when I see that, sometimes I'm able to notice it and I'll try to intervene, you know, and try to help out wherever I can. Um, even one, I mean, we had, we had one girl 4 AM. She was in the hospital last night. She ripped out her IVs. She asked to be discharged AMA so that she could be to clinical by 7 AM. Cause she can't miss anymore. <laughs> and, and she was, she was really out of it. She didn't drink or eat anything. And, but the good thing is we had, you know, people there that could provide resuscitation if necessary. <laughs> Um, and, and another uh, attribute is knowing, being able to recognize true friendship. When I was in undergrad, multiple times, uh, police were called out for my behavior. I even had my best friend had to call the police and she was crying because she didn't want to call the police. Um, and they, you know, they, they strapped me down to a gurney and wheeled me into the ambulance um, and took me to the the mental um, health center and a lot of quote unquote friends during that time fell by the wayside after multiple events like that they couldn't handle it and they permanently disappeared i did not hear from them again so that really once once everything calmed down, I'd say after that next year, the ones that were still around, I would be able to know that those were true friends. <laughs> so being able to recognize who the real people are in your lives. Also, I found it easier to relate to people with similar conditions or to assist them. I have one classmate that may be uh, diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And I have another classmate who definitely is diagnosed with bipolar. And I have several that have different types of anxiety disorders. I have one um, that has ADHD and you can tell that he has ADHD because he cannot sit silent in class. And he's always making sound effects and he's hilarious but he has a very short attention span and always has to let you know that he's there. Um, so I, I feel like I can relate to some of them um, without being judgmental. Creativity is another one. I had one time when I had a manic episode in undergrad, uh, it was in a women's studies class. That particular instructor, we were having like a group discussion. She noticed that I was having pressured speech, which is where you're talking really fast. Sometimes it's illogical, even to the point where you're doing like a word salad, where you're just saying random words that are totally unrelated. She noticed that. And she left the whole class, walked me clear across campus, which was pretty far to the health center that we had at the university. And once I had that first session, that, that healthcare professional said she was really excited because of some of the positive attributes that go with bipolar. 
and she was excited to to work with me as her client. And at the time, you know, I just thought it was terrible to have that condition. I didn't know there could be any good that would come out of it. Um, and another thing that can occur is increased productivity. Many people that have that own corporations or do tasks that seem outlandish in a short time frame, but if they're able to harness their energies and focus them, they can be extremely productive. Back in those days of all my mania and de depression, even though, you know, sometimes I still struggle with depression and I still struggle with the mania, but it's more manageable now. But back then I remember going, waiting in line um, to speak to the financial aid department, bringing in like some sketch of my plans and demanding that they fund my skyscraper and <laughs> and the and the, the skyscraper it i had a purpose for it it was going to be a memorial community service center for my mom and they didn't you know and, and in hindsight i'm thinking why didn't they not catch that there was something seriously wrong. There were so many people that worked at that university that didn't catch that there's something wrong with her. I had one instructor try to literally get the department to throw me out. Um, she wanted me out of the whole university because she was given a lecture and she wasn't really one of my favorites anyway. She's probably my least favorite, but she was given a lecture and she was like, okay, does anybody have any questions and, uh, or comments? And I'm like, yes. And then I went to the front of the class. I took her marker. She handed me the marker <laughs> in my defense. And I started writing down how to market on MySpace. And, <laughs> and I was doing that for several minutes. And she it's like she thought that I was mocking her. <laughs> or I don't know what she thought, but it did not end well. After that, I just remember her like storming out. And after that, she had this personal vendetta against me to get me kicked out of that school. But so nowadays I still do have that, that, that mania. And now I'm going to get into the car, back to the car. One day woke up and was just like, I want to switch my car. There was nothing wrong with my car. And plus my husband had just got his new SUV. So had him take me over to the dealership. And it's like he thought I was walking to the wrong section because I went straight to the sports cars. And so then I picked out, I really, really loved the purple Challenger and I bought it. And it wasn't planned. A lot of stuff, <laughs> a lot of stuff that I do, it's not planned. And then I have to pick up the pieces afterwards and be to be able to sustain my, I don't know, sporadic decisions that I've, that I've made. So I've, I've done that quite a bit. And I think those are the manageable episodes of mania where I just have a random thought, go and do it and then have to deal with the consequences of those actions later. And, and that was one of those things that I did it. You know, I would say that that, also does help me to cope like you know some of those things that i get like when i randomly go and buy 20 baby plants it eventually helps me to be able to cope because you know i love the plants i love looking at them watching them grow it's therapeutic but right in that moment it's a bit excessive it's a bit extreme it's not necessary so those are you know the, some of the types of ways that those episodes uh, still do manifest and there's some days where I still have the depression, especially, yeah, it's, it's some days it's really difficult to get up. It's really difficult to force myself to do anything with my kids. I have no energy and no desire to move. And, you know, and I just, I'm a little bit better about nowadays getting up out of bed and being able to, to function. Ashley, if I may jump in for a second. Um, yes. So during that episode, could you can you talk about the, the situation where my family and I drove to meet you in California? Because I think it was during 
while you're in school and having some of those situations, right? A bit blurry, the memory of that. And I don't remember too much about it, but I believe I was supposed to go move out there with you. I think afterwards. So what I okay. recalled is that- Yeah, you, you, got, you probably got to say that. I probably what? You probably have to be the one to say it. Cause the only thing I really remember about that is you called me, you were stranded in snow. You were asking me to check the weather condition for you. And I told you I was maybe busy watching TV or something. Yeah, so and, and part of this goes just goes to like the network and support and friends and stuff because I was the closest one to get you and I was halfway across the United States. But I think you were taken to an institution against against your will. I don't think you wanted to go. The story that I had is that you were stopping traffic in the middle of a busy intersection and you're trying to recruit people for God's holy war. And so then I was the closest one and I drove. Uh, I, at the time, it was just my wife and, and my oldest he was like 18 months at the time and we drove straight from missouri straight all the way to california to go get you out um and so they had to release you to someone and they released you to my care and as soon as you got out you said i'm not taking any medications there's nothing wrong with me and if you try to make me then whatever and and that that was actually a, a period i think that drove some dis i didn't know how to handle it because i like first of all i have to say that you're very courageous for like reaching out to a medical professional to try to see if there's some assistance you can get or some sort of help. Like, so even going to counseling or something like that is, it, I've been afraid to do it like my whole life because of how mom was treated your entire time. So I refuse to go to a professional. I could probably have a diagnosis too. I, I don't know. I don't want to self-diagnose, but um, first of all, I do want to say you're courageous for doing, for doing that. But when we got to California, we drove straight there and I got you out and then, yeah, you were going to come stay with us in Missouri, but and you came to visit and stuff, but I thought at the time you needed assistance and at the time you thought you did not. And because of that, it really drove a wedge. And I think it's one of the reasons why we literally went a couple of years without communicating to. Yeah. And um, that's one thing that that ticks me off. And what ticks me off about it is before you came out here, I don't know who you spoke to at the facility. Was there some contact or something that you had somebody reach? How did that happen? Well, Claire, I don't know if you want to jump in. If you were, the, I think you were living in California at the time. Yeah, because I was, I was only a few, a few hours away up in Sacramento. It's about two and a half hours away, two and a half, three hours. And I feel like we met at the facility. And you know, I, I did research. I was calling around to friends as well, and uh, I was just the experience that I had with Ashley on the phone was so uh, out of the ordinary somewhat shocking it was like to me it was like ashley you had been possessed your voice was different it was deep it just had a, a different quality to it but the only way i knew that it was you was because you shared some things that happened in our past that only you would know it seemed like you are a prophetess. And so me, like when it comes to mental disorders and things like that, sometimes I feel like they can be looked at as gifts that our society doesn't necessarily recognize or quite understand in a scientific way. And so a lot of the times it's just relegated as a disorder. But of course there are certain elements of it where you know you do have to if you're not functional in our society that we've that we have and that we've all you know just become accustomed to like you have people are going to look at you strange and they're going to write you off and you know aside from that part that episode that particular episode yeah all of the symptoms that you've ex you described you weren't eating properly i think you had been on a diet of oranges i was suspect whether you got into some sort of a substance that you know maybe was spiked or something like that that you shouldn't have uh it was toward the end of the semester i know you were under a lot of stress with that because we we usually stay in contact you know for the most part but then yeah it, it was this point when your friends were calling me as well and then yeah i, I remember you know we me and I, like we were both there speaking with the physician the psychiatrist and to me it was funny how you seem extremely compliant but as you were definitely very tired and i know that that was part of the medication because after you came because you were st you stayed with me instead of um staying with albert so uh i already had 
uh, um, like reluctance toward the medications just because of all the side effects that my mom had when she was on the psychotropic meds. So uh, I haven't tried a little bit of my little bit of it myself. I only took maybe um, like we put it into cocoa, and I had a few sips of that cocoa, and I was about just ready to fall asleep. So I can understand that uh, how it made you feel. Um, just extremely lethargic and the moment we got outside you were saying get me out of here I'm not taking that medication <laughs> you know uh, you just you just snapped to and um, I was like that's my sister <laughs> you know so um, and then um, I, I, I think at that point I kind of suggested uh, trying to find methods to uh, cope with your illness, your condition that did not include medication. Because even at that time, um, I was begin beginning to do research into natural remedies and seeing a lot of uh, different success stories with it and even my own success stories. So um, that... Uh, like those were some really, really important elements, but uh, yeah, uh, during that, like prior to you being uh, put into the mental health facility, uh, yeah, friends were calling, explaining things that had happened, things that you had done. Uh, I guess you were out in front of the, like the um, student apartment yeah. courtyard trying to recruit people, um, yelling at people, like you were basically a religious crusader, you know, telling people they needed to stop, they needed to repent, they needed to change, um, you know, and for me, I was just like, well, yeah, it's kind of true, but, um, <laughs> you know, so I'm thinking you're, you're in the good fight. <laughs> You know, doing what's supposed to happen. But then the moment when they were saying, you know, they took you to a mental health facility, I was like, oh, dang. You know, we got to get you out of there. So, yeah, but I, I, um, and then when I heard you speaking on the phone, I was like, something is, like, I had a client, I finished my client, and I was ready to go. Yeah. But, See, I think that's, that's why this topic is really important because absent positive coping skills, then we can kind of go off astray. And and because of that, like, so we have all past, our past that we're having to deal with, but also we need to be able to support one another. And in that moment, like, I felt because I, I drove all the way over there. And then once you say what you said and said you didn't want to come, then I got back in my car and I headed back to Missouri. And, and to me, I was... The, the way for me to cope with it, which was, was bad, was was shutting that door. And so that's why we kind of became estranged for a while. Um, and it's affected our bond. So um, so I love where you're at right now and how you're able to talk and you're able to process and you're able to recognize and, and, and deal with it. Um, and there's many ways in which I look to you for strength because you've taken steps that I haven't taken. Well, thank you, Albert. Um, so I want to get back to why that situation ticked me off. What what did the healthcare professional tell you when you be whoever you spoke to? I don't know. Did did you speak to a healthcare professional or were you just communicating with Claire or how did that transpire? So that's why I don't. And so I, I don't know. And so yeah. it's kind of like when I got like I was I was of the understanding that I was the one that was able to sign you out. And so like. Because I think because I had at the time, I don't know if Claire had the plan at the time for you to stay. And so they wanted to like set something up. And so I was the one that, that did it. So then that's, so I, I don't have a whole lot of information. I just remember the allegations and then I drove to get you. That had been the plan, but it seemed like as soon as we got out of the facility, you're like, I'm not following the plan. And I just felt like I wasn't in a position to assist you further. And I was upset because 
I had gone all that way and I've done that and it was a bit of a hardship on us. And and now I didn't understand why now you're changing the plan. Like I, I didn't get it. I still didn't get it. And so then I was pissed and, and, and drove back to Missouri. And then that's kind of what uh, led to us not talking for, for a while. But I don't, I don't remember as far as what the facility had said or, or anything like that outside of the allegations and that you were supposed to get released to me. So you technically got released to me. We went in there and um, met you on the sidewalk and then we blew up, we had to blow up and then I guess you were clear and I just walked away because that was my coping mechanism is to run away to shut the door. After studying it um, at school quite a bit, majority of the people that um, have those episodes immediately after they are going to be non-compliant so whichever healthcare professional was involved should have warned you in advance <laughs> that there's a high chance that i'm not touching the pills and that i'm gonna tell you there's nothing wrong with me and that was a huge fail on them because I didn't have any tools to help you through that process. Yeah. Didn't know that was going to happen. And I didn't have any tools to help you through that process. And yeah. so because of the system's failure, it drove a wedge between us as a sibling. Yeah. Yeah. Even I, I know somebody uh, now that he gets injections because of his noncompliance. There's even the injectables because now they're more aware uh and even i feel like they were equally aware now but they're better coped to deal with the fact that some people will refuse it because of the severe side effects like a lot of the anti-psychotic medications cause uh the massive sedation um the weight gain slurred speech that's not it's not fun like there's nothing, <laughs> you know, that you're, you're literally a walking zombie. Um, you can even have a tardive dyskinesia, which is these irreversible muscle movements. Um, and permanently you're, you know, you're going to walk around twitching and, you know, behaving strange. So there's there's so many because because of the drastic side effects not to mention a lot of the antipsychotics have black box warnings which could lead to somebody's death so you know there's so many reasons that pe that people when they're in their right state of mind after whatever episode that they've experienced whether that's um, hallucinations whether visual or auditory when they have that clarity again they're like i don't i don't want to go through you know that again i don't want to feel like i'm sedated i want to have energy you know i want to feel like i'm normal and right now i do feel normal so i don't believe that i need this medication so yeah add, just to add to this what happened with mom and that the more she reached out for help as far as the domestic violence and what was happening, the more they tried to up her meds, change her meds, et cetera, to the point where, and I don't know if you guys knew this, but they were coming to our house weekly to give her Halidol shots because I remember she, that. she supposedly was non-compliant, but it got to a point where they were afraid to come to the house to yeah. give her Halidol shots because it was so dangerous. But the Halidol shots were because she was delusional saying that all this stuff was happening. So it's one of the biggest reasons, it, like, so the more that I research and study it, the more I'm afraid to take those steps to go to a professional to see if there's a diagnosis or a way to help with anxiety or stress and everything. So it becomes very, very complicated. And and it's one of the reasons why, like, sibling groups that deal with this become estranged from one another um, because it's not easy. And you have the system failing and not providing help and support and, and teaching you and, and then all it takes is a story or two where they got it wrong and we obviously have our personal experience and so then we're not coping we're not helping we're not healing and and it's one of the things i think that will cause a cycle to perpetuate and 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 not not to mention knowing what i know now about uh haloperidol she was never in compliance either you're not allowed to 
use that medication and smoke cigarettes. Like that's a huge no-no. <laughs> and or drink. Like, or drink. Yeah, that was another one I was gonna say. She did both. <laughs> Not to mention, you know, you're supposed to be in an, an environment that is non-stimulating. Well, I'd say that our household was pretty stimulating. <laughs> But those are her coping. Cigarettes, alcohol, those were coping making. Like, I, know. I, don't know if she, I, I have no idea, Claire, maybe you know. I don't know if she willingly wanted to drink alcohol or if it's something um, our father forced her to do because he forced me to drink alcohol and coffee and stuff from, from time to time. So, you know, that's one of the things looking back, I don't even know. But it, there were coping mechanisms for her, especially the cigarettes. I'm sure that was her choice. To me, I think it was more of a, a, a family cultural thing because it's just something that was there at least once a month and uh so to me i feel like she she enjoyed it a bit like she would choose certain because uh she was choose certain things she liked the uh the she liked the, the wine yeah the box wine and the carla uh carla rossi so yeah. Stuff, yeah yeah hey but um before lp jumps in and, and, and shuts us down because I, I, I sense it coming. One of the, uh, the, neck, the, the When you're talking about the negative coping skills, I, I talked about running, but I, I still struggle with manipulation because manipulation is, is, you know, taking the negative attention off of me and directing it to someone else. And it can be very, very toxic. And it can be positive and to a certain extent because it could be advocacy, like in the legal profession. So it could be one of the positives like you were talking about, but it can also be very negative and, and toxic. And I just had to confess that's one of my negative coping skills. Well, before I turn it back to LP, which I know is inevitable, um, I want to <laughs> I want to say this uh, quote from a, a self-help coach and author. His name is Tom Wooton. Um, it says, an individual with bipolar can harness elements of mania such as enhanced creativity and productivity. Depressive introspection can yield deeper awareness and insights. And emotional pain can be a catalyst for personal growth. And back to you, LP. You guys just give me a bevy of information. I got one question with 27 parts. I'm going to hold off. I'm not going to give anybody any of those questions because... We just ran out of time, but that's okay. We'll address it at a later time. I want to thank you all for your candor, your compassion, and your courage for not only having these discussions, but for also having the uncomfortable conversation. And as my friend Lawrence always says, we should be able to have conversations without confrontation. No matter what we're talking about here. This is why we're doing the sibling bonds on the Trigger Warning Talk podcast. This is why we are coming together because we want to inspire awareness and advocacy for other siblings, myself included with my siblings. I want to start reaching out to them who are all back in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, and see if we can get rid of this estrangement that we have, if possible. I'm sure it's multi-level, multifaceted, and there was at one point when I turned 30 which was 22 years ago when I first met them for the first time, that we were close. And I kind of don't know exactly what I did to cause the estrangement, but I also like accountability. So I always start with me. I can only speak for me and my part. And so I know that listening to you all, I take all these notes because it helps me in my approach. It helps me focus on some of the things. we like, yeah, you know what? I think I should have talked about that with them you know what i wonder why they didn't talk about certain things with me when it came to our dad because the biggest thing between us is our five we all had the same dad the younger three because it's five of us i'm the second of five the younger three have um, the same mom and so i know that our oldest sister who's four years my senior she started being around them when she was 18 they all grew up around each other and i don't even know what issues they've had if any that may have been more than just regular siblings rivalries type of stuff. Our dad was an alcoholic. He had diabetes. He did not want to deal with it since we're talking about coping. He didn't want to follow the advice of the healthcare professionals, his doctors, his endocrinologists. They told him, you know, you need to knock out all the sweets. You know, I got that from him. I love sweets to this day. You know, I don't have diabetes, but I'm a, a junk food eater. And I do eat healthy, but I do like my snacks, especially when I'm having my adult gummies. That's a whole other conversation. We'll talk about that later. 
anywhere. I thank you all so much for coming on our podcast here. Again, we're streaming on all major platforms. These episodes are going to be very helpful to many people, to many, many, many people. Ashley, I want to thank you for leading this episode. Next time we meet, we're going to talk about trauma to triumph, and we're just going to keep these conversations going because at the end of the day, when it comes to trauma, anybody can get it and anybody can get it. And this is how I believe we can get to our humanity. As uh, my friend Aaron Ryland always says, hope. Help one person every day. This is what this podcast series, Sibling Bonds, is doing. Helping one person every day recreate and reestablish those bonds. I want to cover a quick missing person case here locally in North Carolina, in Greensboro, North Carolina, not too far from where we are in the Charlotte area. This is a report from the Fox 8 News Channel, and it talks about a Greensboro woman who's 25 years old, who is the mother of five, and she was last seen at a gas station less than a week ago. Check this story out. Family is going to bed tonight yet again, not knowing where their loved one is. 25-year-old Marissa K. Carmichael was last seen at the Exxon gas station on East Market Street in Greensboro. That was last Saturday, January 14th. Her family says she stopped there after leaving a nightclub. We spoke to Marissa's cousin today about her disappearance. She's just the sweetest girl you could ever meet. You would just have to meet her to understand. She rarely meets any strangers. She don't know no strangers. You know, she, um, you know she, she's cool with anybody she meets. You got to do something to her. For her not to like you. She just needs to be found, man. She needs to be found. Carmichael has long black and blonde braids. She is said to have a butterfly tattoo near her eye and a heart tattoo on her face. If you see her or you think you may have seen something over the past several days, contact Greensboro Police or Crime Stoppers. This is the case of missing person Marissa K. Carmichael, age 25. Marissa Carmichael was last seen on January 14, 2024 in Greensboro, North Carolina at the Exxon gas station. Address is 809 East Market Street. Ms. Carmichael is described as a biracial female, five foot four, 260 pounds, with long black and blonde braids. Ms. Carmichael has a heart tattoo on her face and a butterfly near her eye. Ms. Carmichael was last seen wearing a white Tweety Bird t-shirt, blue jeans, and yellow sneakers. If you have any information regarding their whereabouts, please contact Greensboro Guilford Crime Stoppers at 336-373-1000 or send an anonymous tip online at p as in peter 3 tipscom That's p3tips.com. Crime Stoppers does not pay cash rewards for tips on missing persons unless criminal charges are filed. All calls to Crime Stoppers are completely anonymous. And again, you can contact law enforcement at 336-373-2222 or Crime Stoppers at 336-373-1000. Finally, as always, live in awareness, never live in fear. Take a first aid CPR Stop the bleed class. We want you to be an immediate responder until first responders can show up, whether you're at a house of worship, academic institution, grocery store, shopping mall, concert venue, anywhere in the world. I always say that it's not a matter of if, but when and where a violent critical incident is going to occur. And what are you going to do if you get caught up in the middle? We want you to be a by-doer instead of being a bystander. For the Trigger Want to Talk podcast and Albert and Claire and Ashley, LP out.